Welcome back to Avery After Dark. I'm your host, Avery Ross. Thanks so much for tuning in for today's episode. I hope everyone is hanging in there during these winter months. I know the cold, dark days start to get to me during this time of year, but we're tough and we're gonna hang in there. Spring will be here before we know it. And I know one of the only things that has helped me lately is getting lost in mysteries, cases, and scary stories. So that's exactly what we're going to do today. This episode, I have a whirlwind of a case for you. And stick around for the end of today's episode for a shocking update in the Scott Peterson case. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure to subscribe to the Avery After Dark YouTube channel. I post all episodes on there. The link to that is in the show notes. Go subscribe and check it out. And if you enjoy the show, leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps so much in continuing to grow Avery After Dark so I can continue making more and more for you. Now it's time to get into today's case. A couple fishermen and their kids were out on the Chesapeake Bay one day when they looked over and saw a suitcase floating in the water near their boat. The kids were really excited as they thought there could be buried treasure inside. So the men pulled the suitcase onto their boat, opened it up, and inside was the last thing you would ever expect to find. A gruesome discovery. Inside the suitcase was not buried treasure, but a pair of human legs. And from there, suitcases filled with body parts began washing up all over the area. Who was the victim, this mystery man? And what kind of person could commit such a horrific crime? May 5th, 2004, a beautiful spring day in Virginia Beach. Early that morning, a couple fishermen and their children took their boat out on the Chesapeake Bay to go fishing. They weren't out too long when they made a strange discovery. They noticed a dark green Kenneth Cole suitcase floating on the water near their boat. They reach over, pull the suitcase on board, and notice it's a bit heavy. Now, the adults believe that someone accidentally dropped their luggage off a nearby boat and assume it's just going to be clothing inside. But one of the kids is so excited to open it up because he thinks there's buried treasure inside of it. So they unzip the suitcase, and inside is a black trash bag. The two men immediately get a weird feeling as they look at each other in suspicion. One of the kids quickly opens up the trash bag and sees that inside is a pair of human legs. This was no buried treasure. They had just uncovered part of a corpse. The group winced in horror and immediately called the authorities, giving them possession of the suitcase. Now, this was pretty shocking. Police discovered these appeared to be men's legs, and also they described them as fresh. News quickly spread all over town, and everyone wondered who was the man in the suitcase, and when would the rest of him wash up? After the discovery of the first suitcase, it was just a matter of time. Six days later, a young woman was walking along Fisherman's Island when she found the second suitcase. She attempted to open it up, but the odor of the decomposition was so putrid, she immediately called authorities. Police had been expecting this call. The second suitcase was brought to the medical examiner, and inside they found the torso and head of this mystery man. The head was wrapped in a medical blanket, and the medical examiner finds this man had been shot numerous times in both the head and chest. Then, a few days later on May 16th, a fisherman found the third suitcase in the water. This one contained the man's pelvis area. Investigators immediately begin looking into missing persons cases in the area so they can identify this John Doe. They work with an artist to release a sketch of this man, hoping someone will recognize him. And shortly after this, a couple named Bill and Sue Rice were reading the morning paper and came upon the sketch. They knew who this man was. 
They call up the authorities and tell them, we think this body you're trying to identify could be our friend named Bill McGuire. Bill and Sue said they were good friends of Bill and told them that Bill lives in Woodbridge, New Jersey, he has two young kids, and is married to a woman named Melanie McGuire. And they told police he had been missing for weeks. After a fight with his wife, Melanie, she said he left their condo and no one has seen him since. Police are able to pull fingerprints from a reckless driving charge in the 80s, and the man in the suitcase was positively identified as 39-year-old William Bill McGuire. Police alert Melanie McGuire that her husband is dead and are a little bit surprised that Melanie had never reported him missing. Police also note that when they tell her that her husband is dead, she didn't ask how he was killed. Police find that petite Melanie worked as a fertility nurse. Friends and family said she was caring, compassionate. Her patients really liked her, saying she was gentle and kind. Bill was described as a funny guy and worked as a computer programmer. Now, what about Bill and Melanie's relationship? Friends said in the beginning it was love, but they were the kind of couple that seemed to enjoy the drama. They liked the ups and downs. They were madly in love one minute. They would break up the next, then get back together. Melanie and Bill got married in 1999 in a very extravagant wedding and settled in Woodbridge, New Jersey. Now, when talking with investigators, Melanie tells them that Bill gambled quite a bit. In fact, she described him as a compulsive gambler. She also claimed that Bill was very moody, and oftentimes he would leave for Atlantic City and she wouldn't see or hear from him for a while. And that's where she assumed he went after their fight. She also told investigators that Bill was the kind of person that could really tick someone off, alluding to the idea that in Atlantic City, Bill had gotten involved with the wrong type of crowd in the gambling scene. She even told them that arguments over his gambling got to be so intense. On one occasion when Melanie told him to stop, Bill told her that when I get back home, I'm going to kill you. The day that Bill disappeared, police find out that the couple had just closed on a half a million dollar house on April 28th. But later that night, Melanie says the two got into an explosive heated argument about the new house. She said that things got physical. She claimed that Bill shoved a dryer sheet into her mouth. And then she said that Bill left, telling her that he was never coming back. She said she believed he was going to Atlantic City like he always did. And as far as she was concerned, their marriage was over. Police question why she never contacted them to alert that he was missing. Yeah, Bill would sometimes go off the grid for a couple days and go gambling, but he had been missing for a month. Melanie said that she didn't even try to call him after he left because it was over. She even had proof she reached out to a divorce attorney and asked the court for a restraining order against Bill. She claimed she was so afraid of him. So Melanie is painting this picture of her being a victim of Bill's, who had this bad gambling addiction, and also the tendency to be violent with her. We'll be right back. You're back with Avery After Dark. Aside from the body, the only other evidence they had to go on were the suitcases. Who did they belong to? And investigators have to ask if the couple owned any luggage sets. And Melanie quickly said, well, none that are matching, but then later changed her tune and said, well, actually, yeah, we do. A green Kenneth Cole luggage set. Authorities find the luggage set that Bill's dismembered body was found in belonged to the couple. So this was a big clue. 
Next, police want to take a look at the couple's apartment to see if they could find anything else. But strangely, they find that Melanie had already cleared out the couple's condo. The place was completely empty. And they also find that she had already gotten rid of all of her husband's belongings, giving them to a family friend. So police track down these bags filled with Bill's clothing and find the plastic black bags she used to pack up Bill's things were identical to the black bags found in the suitcases, the ones that were used to wrap Bill's body. Investigators also know that Bill's head was found wrapped in a medical-style blanket and make the connection that Melanie is a nurse. Hmm. Melanie continues to tell investigators that Bill probably got himself involved with the wrong people in the gambling world. Maybe he owed someone money, got in too deep, and someone killed him over it. She also urges them to start looking for his car and points them directly to Atlantic City. And police do end up finding Bill's car exactly where she said they would. Now, in the meantime, Bill's body is released back to Melanie and she instantly had him cremated and hosted a funeral for her husband that lasted all of 15 minutes. Police's number one suspect here is petite, mild-mannered Melanie McGuire. Melanie was really one of the last people you would ever expect to be behind this gruesome of a murder. But all signs were pointing straight to her. Police secretly tapped her phones and they make a bombshell discovery. They find that Melanie was in a secret relationship with a married coworker. Around the time Melanie and Bill's second child was born, Melanie began an affair with Dr. Bradley Miller. She was working as one of his nurses, and from the tapes, investigators find the two had been in a secret relationship for quite a while. Police never found any evidence that Dr. Brad was involved in this murder in any way. Police recorded hundreds of hours of tapes of Melanie's conversations with Dr. Brad, as well as her parents and friends, and noticed that there was one phrase she really liked to use on phone calls. The phrase, cut off at the knees. But even so, it was hard for many to square a woman like Melanie McGuire with this violent of a crime. This case really forced investigators to think outside the box and realize that killers could look like Melanie McGuire. They could be a petite, seemingly innocent nurse. One of the smoking guns in this case was in fact a gun. Police found records of Melanie purchasing a 38 caliber handgun two days before she said her husband disappeared. Along with the gun, she had purchased wad cutter bullets. And the medical examiner found that Bill McGuire was shot with a 38 caliber handgun with wad cutter bullets. Confronted with this, Melanie tells them Bill actually asked her to buy that gun for her because he had a record and couldn't purchase firearms. He had a prior arrest years back. So she claimed that, yeah, the timing was a bit coincidental, but he could have asked her to buy this gun because he knew he was going to be dealing with some upcoming gambling issues. But that's not all. Police discover that around the time that Bill went missing, Melanie took a couple road trips. They discover that Melanie had used an easy pass at a toll booth to Atlantic City two days after Bill was murdered. Upon further investigation, police found security footage of Bill's car being moved in the early morning hours of April 30th. Unfortunately, the footage was blurry and police weren't able to identify the person in this video, but Melanie later claimed that she actually moved it as a part of a prank on her husband. She said she drove all the way to Atlantic City to move his car a few blocks away so it would be a real pain for him to find it. Oh, cause that makes a lot of sense. She claimed that this was something that they would do to get back at each other. And police are like, 
isn't this the same man you said you had to get a restraining order against because you were so afraid of him, but at the same time you claim you wanted to pull a prank on him? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. It made no sense. Investigators also discover another road trip, this time to Delaware, just days after Bill went missing. Melanie claimed that she was furniture shopping, but the route she took would have led her straight to the Chesapeake Bay area, where investigators believe she dumped off the suitcases in the bay, as that first suitcase containing Bill's legs was found that very next day. When questioned, Melanie said that all of these things were just coincidences, but police don't believe it. And despite not having a lot of physical evidence, mostly what they had was circumstantial, they felt like they had enough. And on June 2nd, 2005, more than a year after the murder. Melanie dropped her kids off at daycare, and after walking out, law enforcement emerged from the bushes and arrested her. She was charged with her husband's murder. And then the media circus began. The gruesomeness of the crime, the suspect, this petite young nurse, it was all stranger than fiction. During Melanie's trial, prosecutors theorized that while Bill was preparing for a move into their new home, a new chapter in the couple's life, Melanie was plotting his murder to make room for her lover, her richer boyfriend, Dr. Brad. Prosecutors also come forward with evidence they found in Bill's car, a bottle of a sedative used in medical practices, and a syringe. They called it a knockout drug, and investigators found a script for it had been called into the Walgreens pharmacy near where Melanie lived at the time of Bill's death. And the prescribing doctor's name on the prescription pad was Dr. Brad Miller. And when confronted with this, Dr. Miller said that was not his signature on the prescription and that it was likely forged by Melanie McGuire. Prosecutors stated that Melanie would have had access to this kind of drug through her work, and they believed that she used this on Bill to render him completely helpless, theorizing that she drugged and then shot him. They also looked on Melanie and Bill's home computer and found some startling searches were made prior to Bill's death, including how to purchase guns illegally, undetectable poisons, and how to commit murder. Melanie argued that someone made those searches, but it wasn't her. With all of this, on April 23, 2007, Melanie McGuire was found guilty of killing her husband, Bill McGuire, dismembering his body, packing the pieces into three suitcases, and tossing them into the Chesapeake Bay. She was sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole after 66 years, plus five years for desecration of Bill's remains. This case was dubbed the suitcase murder for obvious reasons. And through reports, it's said that Melanie hasn't been in contact with her children who are now adults since her trial. But some, including Melanie's family, believe she was wrongfully convicted. Just like Melanie, they wholeheartedly believe all the coincidences surrounding her behavior and movements before and after Bill's death is just her being the most unlucky woman alive. But I gotta know, what are your thoughts on the suitcase murder? And what's your take on Melanie McGuire? Do you think the court got it right? We'll be right back. You're back with Avery After Dark. And now, a shocking update in one of the most publicized murder cases ever. Could Scott Peterson be exonerated? One of the most hated men in America? A free man? I didn't see this one coming. 
20 years after being convicted of killing his pregnant wife, Lacey, Scott Peterson's case is being taken up by the Innocence Project, following the revelation of new evidence. Evidence that they believe could prove that Scott Peterson is innocent. Of all the cases taken on by the Innocence Project, so far about 43% of clients were proven innocent. 42% were confirmed guilty. Now for a refresher, Scott was arrested and charged with first-degree murder in the death of his wife Lacey and second-degree murder in the death of their unborn son. It was one of the biggest, most publicized trials ever. Lacey Peterson, who was 27 years old, was eight months pregnant with their son Connor when she vanished on Christmas Eve in 2002. She and Scott had been married for five years. Scott later told police that he last saw his wife around 9.30 a.m. at their home in Modesto, California. He was leaving to go fishing at the Berkeley Marina, the last time he saw his wife. He said that Lacey was watching a Martha Stewart show about meringue, preparing to do some cleaning, bake cookies, and walk the family dog to a nearby park. Scott said he got back to the house later to find Lacey's car in the driveway. Their dog was there, but Lacey was nowhere to be found. Scott and Lacey's stepfather both reported her missing shortly before 6 p.m. that evening. While Scott initially helped to look for her, detectives said they were thrown off by his calm and cool demeanor. Detective John Bueller, one of the lead investigators on the case, described Scott's behavior as a strange combination of polite and arrogant. He said Scott just didn't seem like a man who was crushed or even greatly disturbed by his wife's disappearance and possible death. Many said that Scott seemed emotionless and some even started to call him a sociopath. And in January, 2003, here came the mistress and all the scandalous details. A woman named Amber Fry told investigators that she was in a relationship with Scott and the two had been having an affair. And hands down, one of the creepiest things she said was that Scott told her that he was a widower and this Christmas would be the first without his wife. This made police even more suspicious of Scott and he became the primary suspect. Four months later, there was a gruesome discovery. Lacey's body was found in the San Francisco Bay, just a few miles away from where Scott said he went fishing that day. Hours after authorities identified their bodies, police arrested Scott Peterson. Investigators say they intercepted him near the Mexico border. He had dyed his hair, had thousands of dollars in cash, his brother's ID, and multiple cell phones. And overnight, Scott Peterson became a pariah. He was the most hated man in America. The public thought of him as a cold-blooded killer, and his trial lasted nine long months. Investigators said Scott Peterson took the bodies from their Modesto home and dumped them into the San Francisco Bay when he went to the Berkeley Marina. It took the jury nine hours to reach a verdict, guilty on two counts of capital murder for Lacey and Connor. Scott was convicted in 2004 and sentenced to death. He was later sentenced to life in prison without parole. But there are some people out there who believe that Scott Peterson is innocent. Much of this stems from the neighborhood witnesses saying they saw Lacey walking their dog that morning. One witness claimed that she even saw two men yelling at a pregnant woman walking a dog that morning as well. Those who believe Scott is innocent theorize that Lacey Peterson ran into foul play while on her walk that morning, long after Scott had left to go fishing. 
The LA Innocence Project claimed that Scott Peterson's state and federal constitutional rights were violated, and that new evidence now supports Scott Peterson's long-standing claim of innocence. Paula Mitchell, the director of the LA Innocence Project, said she found deficiencies while reviewing the discovery of Scott Peterson's case. One of the motions filed Wednesday asked the court for an order directing the testing of evidence from the original trial for DNA. Items mentioned in the court document include cloth from a mattress booked into evidence by police that was recovered from an orange van that was set on fire in Modesto on the morning of December 25, 2002. The motion also requests testing on other items found in the van, including a shopping bag and its contents, also duct tape found near where Lacey Peterson's remains were discovered. In addition, items recovered at a home near the Peterson's residence that had been burglarized around Christmas. The fact that they're taking on Scott's case speaks volumes. They clearly believe there's something there worth reviewing. Many believe that this is appalling and wholeheartedly believe that Scott Peterson is guilty. In 2020, the California Supreme Court overturned Scott Peterson's death sentence. And before he was resentenced in 2021 to life without parole, Lacey Peterson's mother, sister, and brother addressed the court. Lacey's mother, Sharon, said to Scott, I've seen no sorrow or no remorse from you at all. I know you're going to say you have no remorse because you're innocent, but you haven't shown any grief or sorrow for either of them. I still feel the grief every day after 19 years. No matter what happens, no matter what transpires in the future, there are two things that will never change. Lacey and Connor will always be dead, and you will always be their murderer. In December 2022, Scott Peterson was denied a new murder trial, and he has always maintained his innocence and claims he received an unfair trial based on possible jury misconduct. Scott's attorneys have previously claimed that a woman, known as Juror 7, lied about her history of abuse to be admitted to the panel that eventually sent him to death row. But the judge who heard the request for a new trial said there was no evidence to support this claim. Mike Bell Messery, who served as a juror on Scott Peterson's trial, said there isn't a day that goes by where he hasn't thought about the case. Furthermore, he supports a review of this case, saying, if they're gonna find something different that sheds light on something new, I fully support it. But I gotta know, what are your thoughts on all this? Do you believe justice was served in this case? Or do you believe that Scott is innocent? Until next episode, I'm Avery Ross, and this is Avery After Dark.